This podcast is presented by The Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse on education. Visit theednarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast or our blog. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And please leave a review to help us grow this community of educators. Welcome to episode 19 of the Ed Narrative Podcast. My name is Darren Ralston, and I am the producer of this podcast. This time around, we'll be talking with Dr. Carol Ann Tomlinson, who introduced the education world to differentiation, which is a pedagogical approach that, uh, that people use all over the world. So uh, it was definitely a pleasure to have the opportunity to sit down with her. Also joining us is Mindy Moran, who is a former student of Carol's and also teaches one of the courses in Carol's differentiation program. And in addition to that, she is also one of the lead coaches for Albemarle Schools. Um, She was a huge help in bringing this all together, and also she's joining us in the conversation. She doesn't come in right away, but, you know, maybe about 15 minutes in, you'll hear a third voice, and that's Mindy. So, uh, well, why don't we go ahead and get started? The assumption is, for for our discussion, is more that um, we're taking a look at more like the the philosophical end of this sort of broader concept. I'm not, we're not trying to look at how necessarily to do differentiated instruction because there's just so many places you can get that now and it's something that people have really embraced. So what we really were talking about, uh, you know, connecting with you on is kind of getting a little bit deeper into maybe some of the thinking and, and where it's going and things like that. So just kind of give you a context for, okay. for how, how we'd seen this. Does that, does that Sounds fine. suit you? Sure. Okay, great. Great. Um, you know, where we are now with where differentiation has ended up, what, what makes it relevant in this current contemporary time in education? Well, I think I'd think of three reasons why it seems relevant to me. One mm-hmm. is um, we teach young human beings, right. and they're not and never have been a match set of anything. Mm-hmm. And it's really um, hard, I think, for kids to learn just logically when what we're doing is too hard for them, going too fast, when they are when they have great gaps in their learning, mm-hmm. when they already know what we're trying to teach them, when they're in love with this, but we keep insisting on that. Um, so I think it's just a human thing, really. Um, learning is natural for kids in many ways, and when they're young, they learn naturally, and we make it mighty unnatural in schools sometimes. But the reason it's natural for them is that when they learn on their own, they pursue questions that they care about and they find entryways and answers that make their life more powerful and more interesting and more independent. And we sort of file them down a little path that says follow us whether you like it or not. And so I think just that human thing is one deal. I think that's always been true in Mm -hmm. most times and places. Mm -hmm. But a second thing now I think is the time in which we live. And I guess I'd say there two things that are particularly um, important. One is we live in a society where the whole world is everywhere now. So for me, and I'm an ancient soul, but when I grew up um, in all of my schooling, I only have a memory of ever having been aware of one student who probably would have qualified for special education. Mm -hmm. And um, she was the only kid who was ever in my class that seemed to be in any way kind of different that a kid would notice. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that anybody particularly understood the dynamics of that, but I can remember feeling that she was one of us, but separate from us and on the mm-hmm. side and felt sorry that she was on the side, but didn't know what to do mm-hmm. to change that. Mm-hmm. The only um, second language speaker I ever knew was an exchange student who came to our high school yeah. in my senior year from Germany. And so the notion of having students in my class that were trying to learn biology while they're trying to learn English, that had just never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. We have a proliferation of identification in special ed categories. Uh, obviously, we have many speakers from many cultures. Yeah. And it's not only a language issue, it's a culture issue and an experience issue. If I've had a whole different set of experiences than the other kids in my class, I may look inferior when in fact I'm bringing wonderful treasures in, just nobody knows to look for them. Um, we have kids who consistently are ahead of where we are in school and they sit and wait and sit and wait and become addicted to grades and have given up long since on learning. Mm-hmm. 
um, the mix of kids now is just it really is as though the world opened its doors and everything filtered into everywhere else. So this is a wonderful way to live in a time when communication and transportation around the world could bring us together. Yeah. And it produces great opportunities for kids, but not if we don't know what to do with it and if we treat everybody alike. And tied in with that, I think, is that the nature of our society right now is that kids and adults alike, but certainly kids, expect personalization in their own lives. So right. I don't really expect to go to Ben and Jerry's and find one flavor and I have to eat it mm -hmm. or not. And I can get 112 different kinds of socks off the internet <laughs> right. any night in 100 any different picture. colors. Yeah. And, you know, I can now not only watch a TV set in my room if I want to, but I can stream something anytime, anywhere, under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. I can make my own playlist with music. And then they come to school and it's sort of like take it or leave it, mm -hmm. kiddo. And um, too many of them leave it. Related to that time in which we live, we know a lot more about neuroscience now than mm -hmm. we used to know. And so whereas it never occurred to me that I was teaching a brain, I just saw a kid. Mm -hmm. um, we really know a lot about what makes the brain work. That's not the only thing that's working in a kid. There are other things as well, of course. But we have more clues about that. And the more mm -hmm. we learn, the more um, it clearly points to the need to do things that cause kids to feel success and pleasure and um relevance and belonging and stability and those kinds of things. And it's just really hard to accomplish those for that full range of kids right. when we when we teach them as though they're one person instead of 30 or 28 mm -hmm. or 16 or whatever it is we have in a classroom. Um, so for me, those, those things make it particularly relevant. Yeah. Though I would argue for you that you know, probably the most relevant teaching we ever did was one-on-one -on -one with a tutor who took yeah. the kid, you know, in the old, old, old days, um, wherever that student seemed to want to go or mm -hmm. need to go. So it's not that I think the whole world has shifted. I think the premise for differentiation has always been there. But we have ample evidence from both psychology and neuroscience that when work's consistently too hard or too easy for a kid or when it's detached from their interests, therefore irrelevant, mm -hmm. or when they're bound to learn in a way that seems constraining to them, they simply don't learn as well. And after right. a while, not surprisingly, they give up on us. Yeah. With that idea of learning being natural, which you, you've mentioned, and then getting into that personalization, how does that naturalistic learning occur in this sort of environment where there's a very you know, unique experience that the kids can craft for themselves. And how do you get outside of that bubble that they might be creating for themselves to introduce new opportunities to them? Um, are, you, are you asking me, which may not be at all what you're asking, how we make that more attentive kind of experience happen in a constrained environment where we feel like there's certain stuff we have to cover with kids and get them to point B by the end of the year? Or are you just asking how to make personalization happen in the classroom? I heard, I heard you say, I think I heard you say, mm -hmm. as kids become conditioned and used to um, not becoming myopic, but this is what I like, this is where I get it, how do we, um, so far in that direction, how do we still introduce other stuff that they need to yeah. that, that isn't already in their uh, tiny, right. uh, that, as, the, as the zoom, as the mm -hmm. lens goes like that, mm -hmm. and it's still our job as educators yep. to... Yeah, how, how can we get them? Yeah, and I think it does get it. I mean, you look at like social studies standards in the state of Virginia, it's a lot of rote memorization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, and, and a lot a lot of it's problematic history. Right. But the thing is, is that how can you get the stuff from outside that that bubble maybe in there into mm -hmm. into at least in there in a way that they can be aware of it and connect with it. Sure. Right. Because I think it's I mean, we always say, you know, try and loop, loop into their their interests. Right. But sometimes, uh, you know, and this happens in everyday society, too, with, say, the way politics are. We, we start to close ourselves off from things we don't want to see because all we have to do is ignore. Right. So that that's kind of where yeah, I was okay. getting. Does that is does that help? Sure. Thank um, you. Well, I think part of what you said still pertains. Um, if I can, as a teacher, convince myself that one of my most primary jobs is to come to school each day 
with something that's kind of enticing and alluring and appealing mm -hmm. for kids versus we have to cover this tomorrow. Right. Um, well, that's a great way to introduce anything, isn't it? Yes, mm -hmm. it is. And yeah. so to have illustrations, to have mm -hmm. graphics, to have music that ties in, even if it's just an introducing something kind of piece, or to have a piece of music that you play and ask kids to make connections with the part of history you're getting ready to study mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, uh, there's teaching is a fascinating business at the university of course we uh, focus on the notion of teaching and learning is science and it is science but there's a lot of art that goes with that science too mm -hmm. and like it or not I think it's inevitable that a teacher needs to be a bit of an entertainer and a little bit of a magician and a, a stu student of their students enough to understand what really matters to kids at a certain mm -hmm. age and to realize that if you can't pitch something in their ballpark you've pitched it outside of hope um, right. and so I think just just saying what am I going to do tomorrow that's going to really be likely to engage these kids and I think kids are fascinated by things that are fresh to them um, David Sousa who writes about brain science and teaching mm -hmm. um, told me once that the most powerful way to engage a kid is to consistently use novelty. Oh, we've never done that before. Oh, I didn't understand how that could have related here. Ooh, that's kind of fun. And it's surprising and it literally mm -hmm. keeps the brain awake and engaged. Yeah. So I think those kinds of things and then uh, make it possible for us to get outside the bubble. And then I think sometimes the way to get outside the bubble is to give kids some choices about what to do that mm -hmm. can really be pretty much wherever they want it to be. But talk with them about the, the need to embed these things in it, these mm -hmm. ideas, these skills, yeah. um, to, to give them experiences that happen in the world that they have to work with and not always in the pages of a workbook. Or, mm -hmm. But I kind of can't resist saying that I think one of our big challenges in contemporary education is to do what it takes to do one of two things, and maybe there's, they are related to each other, may not be the mm -hmm. same, but one is to realize the limitations of teaching a set of standards for the purpose of raising a test score. Mm -hmm. That it, there's no great number of normal children who are gonna find that appealing. Right. And, and we've bought into that so hugely that even when we can see that we could do something different, we can't do it because we're convinced that we'd waste 15 minutes and then they and would not have heard that information when in fact we knew enough about the brain to know that just because they've heard it, they're not even likely to remember it for the <laughs> right. test, not even right. really to have any value with it in mm -hmm. life. Um, so I think you can, I don't think you have to do something 365 that attends to their interests. But again, brain science tells us pretty conclusively that you have to have two things for the brain to learn. One is um, meaning and the other is um, relevance. And the meaning means I get how this works. I understand how it works. Mm -hmm. I see the mechanics of it, which I never understood in history. I just memorized dead people. Right, I, yeah. I didn't have any sense of what history was or why it mattered or how compelling it was or, or what it was how other for. people were like me at a yeah. thousand years ago or whatever. And, um, and also saw no relevance because it was always about dead people <laughs> and, and not trying to pick on history. I think we've done the same right. thing in every subject that we teach. Math is not a language when we teach it. It's, a series of computations with right answers that you have to march through. So I don't think we can do what we need to do for contemporary kids as long as we stick to that model. My job is to cover stuff, prepare you for a test, and if I've done that, I'm finished. Right. Um, and the more we do that, the more we encounter a second problem, which is that we don't encourage teachers to be creative. We don't encourage them to take risks and to co-plan with students and to help students inject their voices into what we're doing. And so we re we're really trying to ask ourselves what we can do to make more kids interested in a curriculum that, that is being incorrectly conceived and mm -hmm. taught if we want to do the best job yeah. we can do. Yeah. So I think that notion of um, trying to rid ourselves of that model and or saying, you know what, I can teach for meaning and get kids' minds to race around with me in things, mm -hmm. and then be really careful to target things that I know are gonna be significant for them on the test, but in a context that has a great deal more excitement for them and right. is likely to be more memorable. As far as being able to create that experience, it put, I, I mean, that context of having that meaningful point of entry right. for, for yeah. stuff. I mean, that 
you know, that's one plus one equals two that you're here. I think I think I paraphrase that, but you know, where where you where you're talking about having that thing that you needs to be known, and then creating a system for that thing to exist in. It's like you know, a kid doesn't buy a toy just to have the toy. Usually, they create a world around it when they're playing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, right. Um, so one of the other things that you'd mentioned too was um, including specific things in your teaching, right? Um, you build that context for those items to exist. I had a um, teacher I worked with um, a while ago who had used a similar concept and said that if you're telling a dancer what to do on stage, you don't just say dance, right? Mm -hmm. You say put a plie in there, yeah. pirouette uh -huh. here, you know, things like that so that they have these things that they know to include and, um, and that uh, allows them to unleash the creativity. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, looking at, you know, you'd mentioned getting, getting teachers licensed to be able to, to be creative. How, how might one, I mean, how might one go about opening that door for a teacher who is, you know, dealing with making sure that the standards are there? Because I know we've got what students need, but how can you maybe get the teacher some elbow room to, to get there? I think that's a really, really complex, difficult question because permission is one thing and then uh, confidence is another and know-how is a third. Yeah. And there will always be a number of teachers, especially in a place like the one where places you work, mm -hmm. um, where they don't even need permission to do that. There are always mm -hmm. a few who say, ah, but if we did this, it yeah. would be amazing. And it is amazing. Yeah. And then we have other people who say, I wish I could do something like that, but I can't because of the test. Certainly one thing that's critical, I mean, and I, I think again, so that you don't have to keep skirting the system, we need as educators to take a leadership role in expectations for our schools and mm -hmm. for our students. Um, if you look at what, what our best learning scientists and brain scientists tell us, and what experts in creativity say, our classrooms would look totally different than mm -hmm. they do now. Yeah. Um, but if we said, to, if, if, so so we need to be advocating for, for lack of a better term, 21st century curriculum and instruction, and mm -hmm. we're still in 19th century curriculum and instruction, really, for the most part, and maybe worse in some ways than we used to be. So rather than saying, how can we cause teachers to buck the system, in which they work to do something different it seems to me like one of the more important things is to change the system right but within that um i think then giving permission and and albemarle has done that at various points i, I don't know how for individual teachers how clear that permission was mm -hmm. or how freeing it felt I'd because right the test now, is still there with uh, with what i see as a coach i, I feel i feel like there, so I came from a district uh, before I came to Albemarle where it was very much standard, you know, mm -hmm. classic classroom stuff. Yeah. And then coming here, I felt like there's been encouragement to I think so. go with something and, mm -hmm. and see where it leads. Yes. And, you know, if you find out it doesn't work, well, then don't do it again. Yeah. You know, but it, or I maybe think try it one more time, see if you yeah, can fix it. Right. But, yeah. Exactly. If, if the, yeah. yeah. And that's so, the other side of it. Yeah. So I think very clear permission for teachers to be able to say, you know, we have a pretty robust group of students here. Mm -hmm. If anybody can afford to take a chance, it's probably us. Right. So let's do that. And mm -hmm. we'll have coaches talking with you, working with you, trying to figure stuff out. Some stuff won't work. Mm -hmm. And we'll figure it out. We'll keep going and we'll get there. So to me, changing the system is critically important. Yeah. But then beyond that, to we have teachers now, if, if they've been teaching since the onset of the standards movement, mm -hmm. have been at it for 25 years or so. And in those 25 years, no one has said, be innovative. We've said, yeah, here's the, the pacing guide, right. you know, here's the stuff you have to cover mm -hmm. um, when we know that, as Wiggins and McTie would say, it's much better if we uncover it than cover <laughs> it, but that yeah. takes a different route to yeah. be able to do. Um, so if we can give them permission, we don't have teachers in many cases who just naturally have felt encouraged to develop their creativity. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a fair number of teachers who leave teaching because they feel like that part of them is just squashed to mm -hmm. smithereens. Yeah. 
So the permission is one thing, but then showing it, modeling it, when you're using your analogy about the dancing, my guess would be that the majority of young people who study dance when they're little saw it somewhere. Mm-hmm. They saw the Nutcracker and felt transported, yeah. or they saw um, something on television that had that Which kind of dance. Or, and yeah. it, it's art, and so it lifts us, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and once you've seen it, then it's not fill out this worksheet or remember this answer. Mm-hmm. It's, could you be like that? Could you do yeah. that? How would we get you there? Right. Um, so showing teachers what it means to do that, I think, is really hard. Yeah. And then the third piece of that, which is incredibly hard for teachers, is we the more standardized we have become, the more standardized our classrooms tend to want to be. Mm-hmm. So turn in your papers at the same time. You all have to have uh, essays that look pretty much alike. You have to follow the order of steps that we used in this particular thing. Right, yeah which fits that seat, sit in rows and look at mm-hmm. me kind of thing. Well, if we we're going to open it up some, we might need to rearrange the furniture. We might um, mm-hmm. have ragged time on our hands where we didn't even expect everybody to finish at the same time. Yeah. We would be kind of going into the unknown with some of the adventures yeah. we were having. And we've and, been um, at, over at Murray High School. They use yes, mastery yes, learning. Yes. And, um, and there's often that sort of squishy deadline that exists, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... I feel like you know we're definitely seeing a little bit of that yeah, over there. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. Um, so you kind of walked into the standardized part. I was going to go into that a little bit, but I don't know. I feel like we we addressed sort of the relationship there. So, um, but I, I was thinking about taking a look, you know, ahead of standardized learning. Was do you feel like there was the opportunity to take some of these approaches or maybe standardized learning helps to create opportunities just despite itself i I don't i'm just curious what well again i don't think you can generalize across teachers any more than you can kids they're quite a varied set so i wouldn't pretend to do that but i believe from being in many many schools over many many years now that i don't think i'm wrong in saying the majority of teachers and i i would guess that it's the large majority of teachers feel very constrained by the standards. Yeah. And, I mean, I um, run into that. And, and in that. some schools, of course, you can't generalize across schools, but in some schools, there's really a penalty to be paid, or you feel like there's a penalty if you're on a different page in the textbook or mm-hmm. the pacing guide than the person next door. Um, I do believe there's a group of teachers, and again, unfortunately, I think in some settings it tends to be a small group of teachers, but who say, I understand what you're saying, and I'm going to close my door, and I'm going to try it my way and sort of see what happens mm-hmm. here. And it and frequently it works well. And those mm-hmm. are the classes that students gravitate toward and they're hungry for because they don't have yeah. quite so many of them. Um, I guess I would say, if anything, um, your question sort of reminds me of a classroom which has too tight a leash and mm-hmm. the tightness of the leash is really uncomfortable. But it's also a catalyst for a couple of kids to say, I think I can wreck this. Yeah, and right. I, you know, you probably get yeah. a few teachers who say, "Look, no, I'm just going to try something different." Mm-hmm. And in that way, because it fits the nature of that teacher and the way that mm-hmm. teacher's head's working, mm-hmm. I think for those teachers, it creates that opportunity. But I don't see that across the board at all. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, looking at sort of where we are now, what what are you seeing in pedagogy at this moment that is exciting you? Like you're saying, okay, that is looking really promising. Like, what kind of things are coming on your radar? Um, well, one of the things that I've spent some time looking at, because it's it's one of the few things that seems like fresh air mm-hmm. right now, is the notion of personalized classrooms. And that's a bear to deal with, because um, one of the problems that we have is we're going full tilt into it. We haven't even defined it in a way that makes any sense. Yeah. So it means a hundred different things to a hundred different people. But um, it's sort of the antithesis of the standards-focused classroom in that it says students' voice needs to matter, mm-hmm. and there are lots of ways that we can let kids explore and still be accountable for things that, not for covering a thousand facts, but for helping them develop the skills and attitudes of mind that are necessary to move forward. Um, we could do some cross-disciplinary stuff, which would be more meaningful, yeah. Um, some of the better school districts and the or schools and the systems in the world are 
getting rid of subjects even because those are so constraining and don't help kids make connections. So in a theoretical way, I find the idea of personalization to be intriguing and have high possibilities. It would call for total reconfiguration of schools and what they mean to do yeah. and how we are as teachers in right. them and what we need to do. And my fear is always, because all of us who've been in schools have seen this a hundred times, ooh, let's do this cool thing called mm-hmm. personalization. I have a clue what it is while we're right. doing it, but it sure sounds cool. Yeah. Um, and, and nothing will ever work under mm-hmm. those conditions. Right. We always want to reduce something to a Band-Aid instead of a reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chances are pretty fair, given our history, that we do that there as well. Mm-hmm. But in classrooms where schools and teachers have thought about that carefully and moved in judicious ways and prepared themselves to do something interesting, I think that has good possibilities. It sounds to me like it's a pretty easy fit with the differentiation work, but I, I mean, how do you see those dovetailing? I don't think that answer really is quite out there You're yet because... On one of the problems, differentiation to me is a, um, it's an instructional model, which I've always understood. Um, and instruction is, if you're looking at music, instruction is the accompaniment for a melody. Mm-hmm. It isn't the melody. The curriculum is the melody. This is what we've decided okay. we need to teach. And the instruction then has to follow the melody. So in my uh, days of public school teaching, when I differentiated instruction and my colleagues who worked with me on that model, if you could drop into those classrooms now and see what we were doing, you would call them personalized classrooms in many ways because we had really exciting things that kids were working on Mm -hmm. and times as well where where we were practicing some skills that we needed to be able to do those things. Um, And there were different time frames and lots of student set goals and some teacher set goals and that kind of thing. consistently happening there so that because the melody was much freer and more um, energetic the instruction had to match that what's happened in the standardized era is that because the curriculum is so constrained differentiation looks constrained too because it's the accompaniment for that melody Um, and and so in that way people will say well differentiation is is just differentiating these skills for readiness or trying to give kids a choice of two ways to show what they've learned. And if your classroom is narrow like that, so is differentiation. But if you had a more expansive curriculum, then there would be at least some time in the year where you could pursue something that you wanted to pursue, Mm -hmm. even though there might be some core requirements in it. It would be a much more student voice focused thing. You'd have much more student reflection on their own work and that sort of thing happening in it. And to me, that's what differentiation meant when my colleagues Mm -hmm. and I were doing it. But if you want to take a stricter definition in a personalized classroom, by the way, the way we talk about personalization in in at least one of the two approaches to to that topic um, is, well, in an extreme way, it's the student decides what they're going to learn, when they're going to learn it, how they're going to learn it, how they're going to show what they've learned and so Mm -hmm. forth. But even if you took that extreme view, you're going to have kids who can't read well enough to read the text. Right, And then you have to decide what to do about that. Right. And you're going to have students whose writing skills are deficient because they have a learning disability that impacts that Mm -hmm. area. You're going to have students speaking little English and are going to have to work with them to be able to build a bridge between their language and the language they're using in the classroom. You're going to have students who work fast and sloppily and students who work fast and it shows you that you haven't challenged them any. Right, yeah. So you're still going to have to be asking yourself, if this kid needs to go here, what's it going to take to do mm-hmm. that? If he wants to do this, what's the next step to push him further? I see those two things as very closely intertwined. Yeah. And I don't really see personalization um, as first uh, an instructional model because unless you define what it is you want to teach, right. then you have sort of play day in your classroom. We're yeah. just all going to have a good old time here. Mm-hmm. So again, I think it takes us back to the reality that one of the things we have to do as a society in schools is say, well, what have happened to these kids? Right. And where do their brains need to go? And how do we teach them to live in uncertain times and to realize that they can state problems and mm-hmm. find solutions and communicate with other people and yeah. innovate? And, and then that's going to determine what shape both the curriculum and the instruction right. will take. So then for a situation like that, say we were able to achieve this, which would be great, um, 
how, what would the teacher's role look like oh, there you in go. that mm-hmm. regard yeah. compared to say what we're accustomed Doing that, to? Yeah, that's the that's really the the bear in the system, and I'll mm-hmm. answer give you my opinion on that in a minute. Yeah. But um, although you may have to remind me, of the question, <laughs> uh, give you Let's an example that um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, give you an example from um, schools in um, Vermont, which has been a an area that has embrace personalization okay. pretty strongly and and um, yeah, I think they even have a legislative mandate for it and the state has given them lots of money to um, have you had a chance to see some of those schools? Mm-hmm. yeah what happened was though that with all that encouragement people jumped in and started trying things which is not bad especially mm-hmm. if it's a group of teachers that want to try something but it didn't take them very long to say, whoa, wait a minute, we don't know what we're doing here. You know, we, we, there are a lot yeah, of gaps yeah. in this thing, and we don't know where we're going. Mm-hmm. And so for a chunk of them, at least, what they said is, we better back up and try to figure out what this differentiation thing would ask us to do before we look at the personalization mm-hmm. piece. But the role of the teacher is the enabler of kids mm-hmm. to do the things they want to do. So I need to know you well enough to know that your idea of doing photography of underwater areas is going to be a little tricky because um, there's no water right, yeah. which you're not going to freeze <laughs> right. to death in, you yeah. know, or to understand that while you love stories, um, if you think you want to write a novel, we're going to have to talk an awful lot about what that would look like because right now you have random ideas all over mm-hmm. a page that aren't going anywhere yeah. or to realize that you have already read so much in your life that you have a better sense of language and meaning in literature than I do as a teacher and to hook you mm-hmm. up with somebody else. I'm going to have to help manage time. I'm going to have to help manage resources. I'm going to have to help you learn how to collaborate with each other better and I have to you help you be more ref- yeah, mm-hmm. more reflective of your own work so that I don't have to monitor and correct everything you do because I can't do that for 30 right. kids at once. But also have to change the structure of time in classes because 37 minutes doesn't lend itself you know, too mm-hmm. well to that at the secondary level. So that's really the big thing. Even with differentiation, that's the big thing. It calls on me to think about my classroom in a way I never have differentiation itself is really not hard. It's stopping what you used to do mm-hmm. and moving into that new way of doing it. And right. something like personalization, it, it, in certain definitions of it, makes that more um, problematic. Darren, can I ask a question yeah, that's relevant ahead. to that? Um, I teach class on differentiation, um, and we're getting to that part in the semester where, uh, where students are feeling um, sometimes overwhelmed that they can't do it. Now that they know so much in such great, great detail and so much nuance, uh, they feel some d- different levels of devastation about what have I been doing before mm-hmm. um, and questioning themselves. And some, sure. so what is your advice? What do we tell the teachers as they realize, ugh, I'm not, I'm having, I'm doing this thing I'm not, haven't been doing before. You know, they feel, um, what's the word I want, deflated or yeah. defeated or. Overwhelmed? Overwhelmed, there's the word, probably. I think a pretty good analogy for that is um, parenting. I don't know too many parents who've ever come home with the first kid and thought, got this thing nailed, got (laughs) this, we got it 21 years, I'm going to have them out of here and everything's going to be perfect. If they're smart, they really try to reflect on the best of what happens in their homes that they'd like to maintain or extend. They look at other people that they admire the parenting of. They think more about themselves and what matters and what they want to encourage kids to do and how to do that and along the way they mess up all the time but they keep going forward to that vision because it's more important than anything else in the world to mm-hmm. you know get that as close to right as you can and I think when you teach a class like that and you've got busy people and they have like 13 sessions and everyone introduces something new and life's chaotic anyhow um, that's a recipe for some stress and rightly so But I also don't think you could say, I tell you what, this is going to be discouraging to you, so let me just show you a couple of tricks and you go do those. I think giving them the parenting vision and the sense of power there, and then to say, okay, keep that thing in front of you and pick one thing. Choose three or four low prep strategies that you're going to try and add one high prep strategy each marking period and keep going and see what you have after five years. You'll have a lot. Or even worry so much necessarily about knowing all the differentiation stuff. Think about who you want to be as a teacher. And do you have to, on the first day of school next year, say, here are the 13 rules we're going to follow. You have to sign them and follow them. Or this is how we do business. Listen to this. Or 
how can we make a classroom together? And what would we have to do to make that work? And what works for you really well in school? And when does it make you feel deflated? And could we try that? Could we try a classroom where we figure that stuff out together? Mm-hmm. I think you that's how the ones of us that worked together in my school district started this was it just didn't feel right and we didn't have a clue what we were doing. We just knew we wanted to try something different. If you've got a good vision and you can keep it in front of you, you have something of a roadmap. It's never supposed to be that precise anyhow. And I think that's the deal. Tolerate the ambiguity and understand that anytime you have insights, it will upset your apple cart. And if it's upset for a good reason, just hang tight, keep doing something and learn as you go. Um, I don't think it's fair to deprive people of the sense of completeness and complexity, but neither do I think it's helpful to let them assume that our thought is that the day after the course ends, they will go do all this stuff. Well, and similarly, my brain is jumping to you as an educator, educator thinker, that do you remember moments when you're like, when the shift happened in the model or your work and you were like, whoops, well, that's not whoops, but... I don't, sure. I don't have this quite right. Or, sure. You know, yeah. I had a lot of that, especially when I first came to the university, because everything that we had done was based on classroom kinds of things. We were lucky because we had some university researchers who studied what we were doing and gave us some data back, you know, from control and comparison groups and that kind of thing. But, but the notion of, um, you know, we had decided what we thought curriculum was and we went at it. And then you read what curriculum really might be, and you think, dang, I need to fine-tune that sucker a lot. Or um, here's what we used to do with grading. And we came up with the scheme that we used because it followed the philosophy we had with the kids and seemed to be more likely to be an encouragement to them than current grading was. But then to come to the university and say, what do experts in grading think grading should do? And in fact, you mean they're experts in grading? (laughs) And so for me, my second life was always second guessing my first life and trying to understand what did we really, where were we on the path the right way and what needs to be fine tuned. And um, you still see that as brain science emerges where neuroscientists and sociologists and psychologists are saying, look, this learning style stuff you guys use is wacko and shouldn't be doing these five or six things. It's just foolish. And um, there's pretty good wisdom behind that. There's not 100% agreement, but there's some pretty impressive people who give us very good reasons for not doing some of those things. On the other hand, I don't think any of them would say, therefore, you should put the kids in straight rows, never let them decide where to work or when to work or how to work or with whom to work or what way they'd like to show you something is more or less the methods by which we use or misuse those things. And so for me, again, that's still, and there will always be, if I work with this for another hundred years, which is not likely, um, (laughs) there'll still be that, you know, we don't have this quite right yet. We've got new knowledge and hopefully we'll always have new knowledge and it'll keep pushing our thinking. But until we get to the place where we put a little electronic chip in people's brains and pump the stuff in there and they go forward to henceforth happily, um, the notion of maximizing learning is going to stay with us. And so for me, I find it more gratifying to see those bumps in the road and to have to continue thinking than being sort of like the teacher who by the third year had it down and then taught that third year for the next 25 years, which strikes me as just as flat and boring as it could be. So I've gotten so I'm not um, bothered by, I'm interested in the challenges and the bumps and that kind of thing because it keeps my brain going and makes things better informed. I think all parents understand that progression in their lives. About the time you send them to college, you think, if I could start this dude over again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, might have now. something, yeah. you know. Um, and, and, I, and, and yet that's human growth. It's who we are and what we do. So mm-hmm. I, I do understand the sense of being overwhelmed. Um, but it's okay to do big things. Had a former student of mine who's a wonderful parent wrote on a Facebook entry this morning that a little 12-year-old boy was in tears yesterday because he had a big social studies test today in which he had to identify every state on the map and what the capital was, and he just couldn't see doing it, and he was so frustrated that he was in tears. And he said, it's too hard, I just can't do it. And the line's not original to her, but it's one of my favorite ones. She said, you know what? You're right, it's hard. And you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out a plan. 
and they mapped out a swath of, you know, I've got this section right, but I don't have this section. And she taught him the idea of mnemonics, and he developed some really funny ones that they laughed over, and it helped him. And he came home yesterday with 103 on his test. And so she said to him again, see, you can do hard things. And I think that's where we need to encourage teachers to mm -hmm. go. I, um, what do you need to do? How can we figure that out? If it works good for you, if you get 103 on the first day, you're weird, but okay, that's what you <laughs> do. And if not, then we'll figure it out for the second yeah. day and the third day. Mm -hmm. It's a growth thing. We're not very good at sticking to the course in schools. We want to do something. It, uh, Mindy's heard me say this many times, but if I had a dollar for every time someone has said to me, oh, we did differentiation in our school mm -hmm. last year, I'd last be a multimillionaire. Yeah. Yeah. We, and what that means usually is we had a speaker come in once. Mm -hmm. And change doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't. And right. differentiation asks you to reinvent yourself, but we ought to be doing that. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, I think that's just a good thing to be doing in general, Always. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, did you want to, you told me to ask you about the bear. The... <laughs> You're like, the bear? <laughs> um, I don't in, even remember the bear. In regard to the, the, you said that's the bear in the system when it comes to what uh, personalization looks like as it yeah it's it relates back to your question of yeah. what's the teacher's role in there yeah. um i mean it's all very difficult we really need to have a great conversation which doesn't happen in one meeting somewhere mm -hmm. about what's imperative for kids to learn what do we know that wise people across the world say our kids will need in the next 10 20 30 40 years do we believe that, or do we think they still need a high test score? Is that going to really so, do it? And you would say the bear is just being able to. I'd see say it's the sticking future. the court. No, I'd say it's <laughs> being intelligent and deep in trying to solve the problem. That doesn't mean you have to have everything nailed before you do anything. Right, right. But you know, I'll see one teacher that writes about personalization because she let her students choose this topic or that topic for their five paragraph essay. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing? No, kids need some choice. Choice is a good mm -hmm. thing in learning. Is that personalization? If it is, it is the Very little wild. hair on the yeah, top of yeah. its head. <laughs> um, and then I see personalization as um, you get to sit where you want to sit or you, know, you decide what date you're gonna turn this in. Those could be good things, but by themselves, don't amount to very much. Mm -hmm. What we really need is a conversation about where we need to go, what it is that is the opportunity of schools to get there. And then we need to talk about how much freedom can we have in curriculum? Is it okay if what we say is they need to know how to use resources and express themselves orally and in writing? They can compute whether they follow an algorithm or not, but they can solve problems with the language of math. Is that good enough, or is it necessary for them to have multiplication, subtraction, division yeah. separately? Until we know what we're trying to teach, again, because that is the melody, we don't know what to do with the instruction right. piece. And then redefining the teacher's role is really, really tricky, as scary as the Dickens, because mm -hmm. I know how to be what I've been for the last 10 years, mm -hmm. but I don't have and a clue what this new thing looks like. Scares the jeebers out of me. Yeah. Uh, and then talking about how we help kids get ready for that and parents. A question that I keep thinking about when I read a lot on personalization is, um, is what we're talking about here something you start in preschool and the kids do complete personalization from preschool through 12th grade? Because I think they'd be going as crazy by 12th grade as they are now by 12th grade with the stuff that's too constrained. Mm -hmm. How do we introduce that? How do we help them develop the skills in ways that are appropriate to a six-year-old or a ten-year-old? Sort of like a threshold where yeah. once they cross over, mm -hmm. then they get in. So, so in um, most endeavors, a music teacher generally understands what a beginning piano student needs to do mm -hmm. and one who's showing great talent after nine years needs something, there's a trajectory and right. you kind of know that and coaches sort of know as kids mm -hmm. way down the trajectory from where people his age usually are. We need that sense of those, of whatever it is we decide that kids need to learn, including collaboration, including self-reflection, including planning, including taking responsibility, including how to read things for depth and meaning, how to synthesize, those are skills that we don't need to teach the same way in 12 years, mm -hmm. but we do need to have a rolling plan for them. And in my knowledge, in our school's history, we've never really had a time about anything where we shared those discussions. And so we start this new thing mm -hmm. without understanding its meaning or its implications or its right. opportunities. And that, to me, is the bear. It's doing it 
the right way rather than, okay, we can do this tomorrow and life will be just fine. Right. Okay. Can I ask one thing on that? Are you, yeah, is go your ahead. Head, is go your head ahead. in the game? Um, well, you were talking about the things that we think kids need to do, understand, the, the, that's sort of what we collectively think. And it triggered me to wonder, as your former doctoral student for many years, that you're out of town a lot and you're in other countries a lot and your books are in a lot of languages. So I was wondering if you know what uh, propels those people to ask you to come to them. What are you noticing anything about what they're wanting from you in different cultures? Are you are is there a is there a reason you're getting called to Singapore to Australia? To, you know, is it say something about what they want to happen in their schools or about a change that they want to happen? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I I think different things propel them, but probably the most basic one is where Darren started um, the conversation, which is the wide differentiation and it's because they have this huge mixed bag of kids in these classes and they're also kids who were born at a very different time than most of their teachers and they have an expectation of more freedom or if this doesn't work for me I don't do it or even if they're in a school that's fairly conforming they now suddenly have kids who are speaking 11 languages in this classroom and they don't really know you know what to do with that they have a sense that they've got bright kids that they're under challenging and they for many times for the first time are integrating kids with learning problems into the classroom mm -hmm. so it's that it's my first premise about why we differentiate humans are different and they need it and we know too much to assume that just throwing it out there is going to mm -hmm. work for everybody but then your question gets more interesting when um the administrative powers that be ask me to come because it's not that teachers don't feel a need for a change, but it's really the administrator saying we need to do this, and I'm talking about central office level people, whatever term they call it in that country, um, and yet they don't necessarily understand the cultural implications of something. So if you're in a school district, a school system, I'm sorry, where um, compliance is it, and teachers are rewarded for compliance hugely, it's a compliance-driven, tier-driven system, and then you say to the teachers, um, probably not the best you can do to all be on that page today. It's like, whoo, where do I go from here? And you do then begin to see cultural differences. You see some of this in the United States too, of course, but in countries where achievement is it, that's the currency of the land. And you suggest to a teacher that it might be wise to help this kid that never learned to add, try to get a little bit better at number sense before they launch into division then the next thing that I mean, fear in the eyes and I, I can't do that if mm -hmm. parents think their child is doing something any different than somebody else my head will be on a plate there's some places where that actually is really true not just you know not just an exaggeration and those are cultural differences um in a place where you end up with 100 125 kids in a classroom by the nature of the development of the country it's still, you know, here's food, we're going to throw it at you, take it or leave it, and yet that's a much better thing than it's ever been before for them. Mm -hmm. um, then their thinking about classrooms and instruction are quite different. So, yeah, differentiation is very culturally loaded. Um, and yet still, in every one of those places, it's the realization of human differences and that ignoring them is not being useful that precipitates the conversation. We've had many uh, students in at Curry who've come from other countries for doctorates and I've had much, multiple experiences with students from very restrained constricted countries um, that have studied differentiation often in the beginning thinking what is this stuff and uh, not like anything I've ever seen and in the end really found themselves in tears thinking about the difference in what would happen to their own children if they were in classrooms where they were seen as individuals and encouraged to develop mm -hmm. themselves versus the really regimented, uncaring sorts of settings that they were in. And that is a reason that I still get on airplanes to go to places that seem <laughs> unlikely because I do think in almost every experience that I have, people have asked me to come because of that just fundamental level of understanding that when you pitch it out there for everybody as though everybody's going to receive it effectively and in the same way and with the same degree of success, it doesn't work. Plus, then you get all the data that we have about why it is in almost every country. Low-income students or minority students do worse than other folks. And 
realizations that if, if, if nothing else, just the sense that if as a country we can't draw on the strengths of all these people, we're going to sink economically, and so we got to do something to work there. So I think those things are fairly common across, the, across cultures. Um, but yeah, there are cultural issues with how you go about, or whether you decide to go about doing mm-hmm. something. I wanted to touch on like two more things and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, one um, is, so we've talked a lot about sort of the philosophy, the, the thought around you know, how differentiation operates, its benefits. How do you respond to people who are critics about this field, or, or not this field, this, this mode of, of teaching, this, this idea of differentiation? Um, I would have to say that, unfortunately, most of the, well, virtually all of the critics, their point of criticism is, this is too hard, it can't work. And so that's what it's predicated on mostly. Yes, but then, unfortunately, in almost all the circumstances, when I read or hear what they're saying, I, I don't think they know much about differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's an issue when you criticize something and clearly don't understand its framework or its intention, you know nothing about its philosophy, that makes it harder to engage in a good conversation. Right, yeah. Differentiation is hard. It works. I see it in many classrooms in this area. I see it in classrooms all around the world. I'm also very aware that it doesn't happen in many classrooms and that often when it does, it is misunderstood, misapplied, misperceived, Mm -hmm. but that it can't work is just not a premise that I can buy because I see it when it does work. Mm -hmm. And I am fortunate enough to have people from a lot of different places talk to me about what the philosophy and the practices have done to reconstruct their teaching and to make them feel entirely differently about themselves as people and about their work. So somewhere between that, life is perfect and this can never happen, Mm -hmm. um, we need to again decide, do we want to just keep pitching and hoping it works for everybody or are we willing to invest the time and energy in trying to get it better? And, And it's not a recipe for me. It has always been much more of a heuristic than an algorithm, Mm -hmm. a a broad framework for thinking. Mm -hmm. I can reflect back easily on the 20 years that I did this with my colleagues in Warrington before I came to the university, Mm -hmm. and uh, we never presented to each other a formula. We were just asking the question, how can we make school work better for more kids? And sometimes... It was kind of an organic process. Yeah, it was. And just like Mindy talks about... um, hitting bumps in the road now and having to mm-hmm. say, whoops, got to take a left turn here. That happened frequently for us. It was a way of life. And I think it is in a classroom when you try to do remarkably different things. So I'm perfectly open to conversations about right. wise ways to do things. I You're going to have to work hard with me to make me believe that a classroom where somebody teaches to the middle is going to be increasingly helpful for the diverse students mm-hmm. that we have now. Beyond that point, I, let's talk about what we could do. But um, the, the notion that somebody who misunderstands what they're talking about is on a jag yeah. is not helpful to it's me. It doesn't push me forward any. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sort of more like a rant than it is a constructive yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. approach. So then, and this will be my last question before I turn it over to you. Um, so for somebody who is looking to really embark on getting into this uh, mode of teaching, where would you point them? Like, where would you say, try this or start here? Where, where would that point of departure be? Well, um, I, I give you two answers. I mean, certainly there are, are resources available now that weren't available 25 years ago yeah. when my colleagues and I were trying to do this if there was anything out there, we didn't know it. We were in a school district that was so um, early in its development that we didn't even know teachers read books about teaching. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, really, and I don't yeah. think they mostly yeah. did. You well, know, I think be, that may have proliferated more in the last 20, 30 years. Absolutely. Because you know, yeah. I know that there's so many choices. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so there really so. is good stuff that you can look at. There's good stuff you can read that can help you. But I still always go back to where my buddies and I started, which is this group of kids we've got is dying on us because the range is so huge. Mm -hmm. And no matter what we do, there's a huge chunk of them that you can really see dying on the vine. And Mm -hmm. if we change the one thing from yesterday to today, then a different chunk will die on the vine, but they're still out there doing that. Mm -hmm. So what can we try? And I think understanding your own power to... Be reflective about your classroom and to decide in your head what's the image you want. How do you want it to look in here? How do you want it to feel? 
and then finding one or two other really good colleagues who believe as you do and want to work together Makes can difference. be really transformative. Yeah. So it seems to me like the combination of resources that could kind of kick you down the path a little bit and then just really being willing to say this isn't this isn't where I want to be in five years or ten years or mm-hmm. even next year I want to be in a I want to be able to see I've made progress so what am I going to do um, have a colleague who teaches in a university in another state and works with largely undergraduates and wonderful mentor for them and spends a lot of time in the time that she has them talking about the need to understand your students and know them as people and respond to what you see and that kind of thing and she has the knack of encouraging them to dream big and to try Mm -hmm. hard things and to realize that they can do those hard things and so when they leave her they're really really psyched about you know changing the world and sometimes she'll say to them on the last day of class after she's talked with them and you know sent them forth with hopes and thank them for their time she'll say oh my goodness i just realized i forgot one tool that you need and i i just can't let you go if i don't tell you about that because i don't want you not to have what you need next year so i want you to promise me right now before i tell you what it is that as soon as you leave here you'll go get it so that you have it well yeah yeah they'll do (laughs) it because life's got to be perfect out there and so she'll say, I want you to go to Walmart or Kmart. They don't say Kmart there because it's Walmart territory. Right, but, yeah. <laughs> and get a hand mirror, you know, one of those that has a handle on it, and you hold it and hold it up in front of your face. And I want you to take that and put it in your top drawer in your desk. And anytime you have a problem next year that's really trying for you, something that really seems like you've got to address it, pull that thing out and look in it, and the solution will be looking back at you. Oh, and I love that. Right, yeah. it, um, we can find our way. If the, if the bunch of us in this little country school district where there wasn't even a hamburger stand when we started <laughs> could figure that out, um, it's a question. Of, for these 20 kids, it's not working. It may be working pretty well for these five and okay for these 10, but these 20, not so much. So how can I shake it up? What can mm-hmm. I do? And that's where you're trying to go. Mm-hmm. Well, so like I said, I want to turn it over to you. Is there is there anything that you feel like maybe we didn't cover or that, that you'd like to bring up? Maybe something that you're looking ahead towards. Um, I want to make sure you have the opportunity to, to cover something. I think you've covered the waterfront pretty well, but hey. just because just just you offered, I'll go back to Mindy's notion of um, the bigness of it all. Teaching is big, and excellent teaching is really, really, really hard. And by the way, if you look at almost any set of writings on excellent teaching or the very best standards we have from professional groups, Good teaching involves differentiation. It just really does. But accept the bigness of it. You know, Jisha, at the end of the day, it's great to say I had an amazingly hard job and we did good stuff and I can see myself growing and I can see a difference I made the kids. I don't know any kid, I can't imagine 25 years from now when today's teachers are getting ready to retire, the ones that are out there, that their highest dream is that somebody comes back and says, boy, you were an excellent test prep person. (laughs) That's not what you want to be doing with kids. And so to do what it takes for all kinds of kids to come back and say, you were transformative for me. When I thought I couldn't do it, you showed me I could. When I thought I had no ability, you showed me that I did. Um, You made me believe in myself. You gave me skills I didn't know I could master. And you can't do that by pitching a lesson to whatever we think the middle is and mm-hmm. moving forward. And so embrace the bigness of it. Accept it. It's a, I, I can't think of another job that's as important other than parenting as teaching is. And sometimes teaching is the surrogate for parenting because kids don't have the opportunity to have the parents that all of us would wish for all kids. Right. Um, so it's, it's a huge job, and it's fine to look at that and to realize the complexity of it and to go with it. Should we play? We spend lifetimes trying to hit that darn ball across the golf course to get right, you know, um, teachings at least that important. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank really you for the opportunity. I appreciate and the chance to talk great. with the folks who listen to you. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. That's episode 19. Thanks again to Carol Ann Tomlinson for joining us. Uh, It was a good conversation and and a real uh, honor to be able to sit down with somebody who's been so influential in education. So that was was definitely a a great experience for me. 
Um, I also want to thank Mindy for joining us and for helping out with the planning for this. Um, Mindy had asked if I could include a quote that uh, she thought really uh, crystallized the philosophy that uh, that Carol has, and um, I felt, you know, after having having had the conversation, and I'm sure you, after having listened to it, will agree that uh, that this is very apropos. So here it goes. Differentiation is rooted in and asks practitioners to grow in the ability to signify human potential. And like I said, if you just listen to that conversation, you'll know that uh, that is exactly what, uh, what Carol's philosophy is. She is looking out to make sure that the dignity and individuality of each student is respected and is capitalized on so that they can realize their most, uh, most greatest potential in education. So I want to thank both uh, Carol and Mindy for joining me. And I'd also like to ask you to check out the website. It's www.theednarrative.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at The Ed Narrative. So that's a wrap. Catch you later. Bye.